it is no secret that everybody loves a wedding. Everybody, that is, maybe with the exception of probably the groom and, and the bride's father. <laughs> they both had two different reasons for that, but nonetheless, a wedding is a great and joyous celebration. The mother of the bride may cry, but still a joyous celebration. Psychologists say that uh, girls tend to marry boys that like their fathers, and that's why mothers of brides cry at weddings. <laughs> a friend of mine says that uh, the reason people cry at weddings is because they have been through it, and they know it's no laughing matter. <laughs> there was a small girl, seven years of age, her first wedding ever. She's been to it, and then she sat next to her mother as she saw the bride come by, and she turned to her mother. She said, Mother, why does the bride wear white? Well, the mother quickly kind of tried to hush her and finally said, Well, white is the color of happiness, and this is the happiest day of her life. Well, a few seconds later, this little girl just thought about that, and she said, Well, why does the groom wear black? <laughs> now, wisdom comes out of the mouth of babes. (laughs) But in all seriousness, if there is a one person that truly looks forward to that day, it's the bride. She longs to be with her future husband. She has dated him for so long. She has loved him for some time. Now her life is filled with expectations about being permanently united with him. And and the husband-to-be has shown kindness to her. He has promised to be her protector. He has promised to be her cover. And he promised to be her spiritual head. And, And she can't wait for that to happen. He proved to her probably again and again during the time of courtship that that he loves her unconditionally. That he will always be available in the times of need. That he will always be supportive in the times of uncertainty. All that adds up. For the bride to be excited on that day. And she is counting the seconds for that day to come. It is not surprising therefore that the image of a husband and wife. In an ideal biblical relationship. Is what the scripture gives us again and again. In the relationship between God and his people. Throughout the Old Testament. The Lord talks about Israel as his bride. And then the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that the church is the bride of Christ. That is a special relationship. But also the Bible tells us what happens in the book of Hosea, for example. Of what happens when a faithless spouse, in this case was the wife. What happens when she breaks her husband's heart? Unfaithfulness can work either way, but with God... Is only can work one way. We the unfaithful ones. He is the faithful always. And throughout the Old Testament. God revealed to us again and again. How he felt. Toward the unfaithfulness of his people. He has fulfilled all of his promises. He has fulfilled all of the sides of his bargain. He has provided for them day and night. He has protected them day and night. He has richly blessed them in every way. He loved them unconditionally. He called them again and again to repentance. But they kept on running after other gods. They kept on running after things. They set their hearts 
on things in the, this, of this world and the system of this world. And they began to reflect the world instead of the God who loved them. And you know, again in the book of Hosea, we see one of the most hurtful thing of all is when a spouse ignores her spouse or his spouse. When they become indifferent toward his love. And in the light of this history, the Lord Jesus Christ tells this parable in Matthew 22. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. This is a magnificent parable. This is a magnificent story. And in order to focus our attention so we don't go all over the place with this parable, I want you to focus on four different groups in this parable. First of all, I want you to focus on those who have refused the invitation. Secondly, those who are excused themselves from the invitation. And thirdly, those who made use of the invitation. And fourthly, those who refused the king's provision. Those are the four people with which we are confronted in this parable. You know, in the ancient Middle East, wedding feasts are inseparable from the wedding itself. Depending, of course, on the financial strength of the family, these celebrations, these wedding celebrations, these wedding feasts can go on for weeks. Not now, given the economic conditions, but nonetheless, this was the case. In fact, until recent times, this practice was continuing. I remember as a, as a small boy growing up in the Middle East that we had a neighbor who had a son, an only son, and at his wedding time, his wedding feast, they had a tent in the yard and, and they served food every night for seven nights. And then, of course, the big banquet was on the night of the wedding. These were seven nights before the wedding. Now, guests were invited from all over the country and they stayed in the groom's father's house for the entire time. Even today in the Middle East, every guest that gets invited to a wedding receives a gift. When they leave, <laughs> you don't give a gift. You receive a gift when you get invited to a wedding. The groom's father provides all these wonderful festivities. He pays for all the food and he pays for the gifts that people receive before they leave. And that is why in the Middle East, it is the groom's father who cries. <laughs> but a royal wedding, of course, is held in the palace. And the king always was very extravagant in his desire to please his guests. He's very extravagant in the way he throws this party. And I'm going to come to the extravagance of God in a minute. And the fact that this wedding feast is in this parable, the fact that it's a wedding is really incidental. The emphasis of the story of our Lord Jesus Christ is upon the feast itself. In fact, you notice that the bride is not even mentioned here. A royal feast, obviously, is going to be the party of all parties. (laughs) I mean, it is the the king's party for his son is going to make every other party look insignificant. Again, in the Middle East, people like to outdo each other in their extravagance because it is so tied in with their views of of generosity and their views of hospitality. And uh, so-and-so's party was for seven days. Well, ours is going to be for eight days. And the next guy wants to be for nine days. You know, you think of it, if you think more foolish than that. Well, to each their own. 
But when it comes to the king, no one can match his parties. <laughs> and this particular party is given by the greatest monarch in the universe to the most honored guests in the eyes of God, those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the preparation was completed, the king sent his servants out, and he sent them to all those who have been pre-invited to the wedding party. The invitation was issued ahead of time. They knew that the wedding is coming. They knew that the party was coming. They knew that the feast was coming. And this is only a time of preparation. So they received the pre-invitation. I want to explain that to you. To receive an invitation from your king is the highest honor that anybody can receive. And it is all free. You don't have to do anything or pay anything. So you can imagine... When your name is on the king's A list, pre-invitation list, top list, and then when he gets invited to the feast, you don't show up. Imagine the insult. How can such a thing be? The very thought of turning down your king and turning down such invitation is preposterous. An invitation from one's king is the greatest honor imaginable. To spurn your king's invitation is a serious offense. Now, of course, back then and even now, there are few kings, if any, who are known for their humility, who are known for their patience, especially when they are openly insulted like this. So this king sends out another invitation. But this time, not only... They refused the invitation. They had an excuse. They were busy. They went about their work. Look at it in the parable. This time, the invitation was more urgent. The food is ready. The king is sitting on his throne, sitting at the table. And he is waiting for the people to come. He's waiting for the invitees to come. Everything is ready. Everything is done. It is no surprising, therefore, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine, he said, it is finished. He completed it all. It is all ready for the invitation. It is all ready for you to come and receive at his table, has received from his grace salvation free. I'd imagine perhaps there was some imploring on the part of the servants, imploring these people to come. Please come. You have been invited. Come. Probably there's some pleading with them to come. The king is awaiting. But many of the invitees were cold and they were indifferent. They were selfishly preoccupied with their personal business. They were busy making a living and missing out on real life. They were preoccupied with their wants and their ambitions in life, forgetting the most important things in life. They were so immersed in their imaginary satisfaction that they have failed to know the real fulfillment in life. They were anxiously going about on the pursuit of happiness, which is no more than a fleeting dream. They were running around seeking a mirage when the real festivities and the real king and the real joy and the real value of life is only... In the king's palace. In the Lord's house. I pray to God that if you're a person who has been hearing the voice of God inviting you to come. 
and I've been trying to silence it for a long time, that you would not silence it today. But then there was another group of invitees. They were worse than indifferent. Look at the second group. This group was far from being concerned about offending the king. Far from being concerned that they are insulting the king. They were themselves were offended. They themselves were insulted by the persistence of the king. And they were insulted by the continuous persistence of the invitation itself. And they act in brutal arrogance. They insult the servants. They abuse the servants. They mistreat the servants. And finally, they extinguish them. I want to tell you something. Listen to me carefully, please. I've thought and prayed about that a great deal this past week. I believe that in modern America... Today, the equivalents in our day of those people are those who declare that Jesus is an illegal name to be named in public schools. Their equivalents are those ones who legislate godless laws. They are the ones who insist that the Ten Commandments must be taken off walls lest it may make people think of God. They are the ones who insist that anything to do with God must be practiced in private, that must be practiced in secret. They are the ones who call God's faithful servants to be extremists, which is only two steps removed from them trying to lock them up and exterminate them. They're the ones who would imprison anyone who would kill a rat, but then they say it's okay to kill a baby in a mother's womb. They're the ones in this parable who represent those who are actually hostile to biblical truth. And if you haven't met them, you're not living in this world. You have not met those who are hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not living in this world. And you know what? They do it with a smile and they do it with charm and they do it with wit. And even people in the church have said, yes, but he's nice. But she's nice. What has nice got to do with it? Throughout history, the two enemies of the cross, listen carefully. One is indifference and two is a false religion. An apostasy in the church. The enemies of the cross are both the purveyors of errors in the church and those who stay with them. The enemies of the gospel are both those who promote falsehood in the church and those who tacitly support them. I was talking to somebody not so long ago and he was telling me about why he has to stay in this dead church, this apostate church. I said, get out of there. He said, no, I can't. My grandmother was buried there. My grandfather was buried there. I said, listen, if your grandmother was living today, she would get out too. (laughs) But I want to tell you what gets to me in this parable. What really gets to me is the persistence on the part of the king which is an indication of his gracious patience. It's an indication of his gracious forbearance with the rejectors. How often is God calling America to turn back? For how long will God keep calling America to turn back to him? But I want to tell you that God, the time is going to come when he says enough is enough. My patience has run out. My graciousness has run out. It is time for judgment. And I want to tell you 
that is exactly 40 years from the time that the Lord Jesus Christ told this parable. He told this parable exactly 40 years later. His prophetic words came to fulfillment. For he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These are the ones who received the pre-invitation. They're the ones who supposedly could looking forward and long for his coming. There is scripture from beginning to end is saying that the Messiah's coming, the Savior's coming. When he comes, believe in him. But when he came, they refused to come and receive, accept his invitation. And the opportunity for the invitation to those who were pre-invited, the household of Israel, the people of God, the opportunity for them to come and accept that invitation ran out after 40 years. They said, come, but they wouldn't. And it was exactly 40 years of persistent invitation. Look at verse 7 of the parable. The king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. That word of prophecy took place in 70 AD. For history tells us that at that year, there was a Roman general by the name of Titus who came in and killed more than 1,100,000 Jews and he slaughtered countless thousands of others throughout the land of Palestine. What will happen to America if we persist in not accepting the invitation of God? In Matthew 22, verse 8, in this parable, Jesus said, the king sent his servants to the highways and the byways. You know, the one thing Roman Empire did is that they opened highways, they opened roads all over the the known world at the time. And all these roads led to Rome. And therefore, Jesus said, go out to the highways and the byways. Go to the Gentiles. Which brings me to the third group in this parable. Those who made good use of the invitation, those who refused, those who excused, and now those who used the invitation. The servant's commission was to go everywhere to invite anyone who will come. And this is precisely is what we call the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He told the disciples to go to the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of every nation. And the invitation is to whomsoever comes, whomsoever will accept, whomsoever receive him. There is no class system in the church of Jesus Christ. Whomsoever, rich and poor, black and white, old or young, whomsoever. So the servants would go out. They went out and they called both the morally good and the morally bad. You say, how come? I'll tell you exactly how come. Listen carefully. Because they are both equal in the sight of God. The morally good and the morally bad are both equal in the sight of God because by themselves they are unworthy to come to the king's table. They are unworthy to come to the king's palace. The original invitees saw themselves to be morally superior. They saw themselves to be spiritually superior. So Jesus said, go on and uninvite them. 
And then the second group was a mixed bag. The Bible said that only those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb will make it to the king's feast. Then there was a fourth group that represented by one. Among those who came, there was one who was not wearing the wedding robe. Now, this intruder who came was no party crasher. <laughs> he was invited. He came by invitation, but he came wearing his own clothes, not the wedding clothes. It is also a fact that back in the ancient days, at royal weddings and wealthy people's weddings, when you came from the outside, there was a tent where before you got to the palace, before you got to the castle, you were handed a robe, one size fits all type of robe in order that you go into the wedding feast, into the royal palace, all dressed the same. It's like, you know, sometimes when you go to some restaurants in Japan, not only you take your shoes off, but they hand you a kimono that you have to wear. It's all the same color. You know, I remember when you go, I went to one of those snooty restaurants, and you're kind of dressed casual. They bring you some old coat, and they put it on you, and, and a 10-inch tie, and let you wear it, you know, because you dress casually at this particular snooty restaurant, you know. It is something like this, that everybody came in, wore a special dress, wore a special gown, wore a special robe in order to get into the wedding. That's their identification, that they are special invitees. The king knew that all of his guests, all of those who have responded to his gracious invitations, they were spiritually poor. They were sinners by nature. And they did not have any royal attire. The king of kings knows that none of us, none of us, you and me, none of us have any righteousness of our own that gets us anywhere near heaven. He knows that all of your good works and all of my good works without Jesus is like a dirty rag in his sight. So he made provision for those of us who trusted his son, for those of us who come in humility and brokenness before him, for those of us who come in confession of our sins, he made a provision for us to put on the robe of righteousness of his son. But there was one person representing many. And I dare say there are many in the professing church today like this, this one man who came not wearing the royal robe. This one person who decided to defy the royal protocol. This one person who was a proud man. He was self-willed individual. And he was insulting to the king's provision. This one person in the wedding represents all those who think that they are going to heaven on the strengths of their good works. He represents all those who think that they are going to heaven on the strength of their own merits. He represents all those who think that they're going to heaven because God doesn't care what you believe. He represents those who think they can go to heaven without repentance. They can go to heaven without faith in the Son of God. You notice what the Bible said? When the king confronted this man, 
this presumptuous man who thought that he's going to get to heaven on the basis of his own understanding, his own plan. The Bible said this man was speechless. He was dumbfounded. You see, they refuse to believe what the servants are telling them. But when they get there, they say, now we understand. But you know what? It is too late. This man's arrogance was short-lived. The king found him out and he sent him out into the outer darkness. So I heard somebody recently said, don't ever joke about hell. Because there are real people who are going there. Ever since Cain attempted to please God his own way, ever since Cain tried to please God in his own terms, there have been countless of millions of people who have tried to do the same foolishly. And the day is coming when they will be thrown into the outer darkness and the fiery furnace. You see, our God is so rich. Our God is extravagant. Our King is so rich in goodness. He's so rich in wisdom. He's so rich in grace. He's so rich in mercy. He's so rich in in glory. And only His goodness that will get us into heaven. Only the richness that he imputes upon his children and upon those who believed in his son. Only that richness that they receive from him will get them to heaven. Because our king has riches that is incorruptible. Because our king has riches that are inexhaustible. Because our king has riches that are incomparable. Because our king has riches that are unsearchable. Therefore, It is only his righteousness that will qualify you and me to get into his palace, to get into his feast. Only this royal garment of his righteousness, Jesus is telling us in this parable, will get us into the royal feast, into heaven. You know, when the prodigal son, the Bible said he came to his senses, that's Another word of saying he was repentant and he came to his daddy in brokenness and in repentance. And he said, Father, I sinned against you and against heaven. You know what the father did? The first thing the father did is that he brought the best garment and put it on him. Why? Because only the garment of his righteousness can cover our sins. Only the garment of his righteousness can cover our imperfections. Only the garment of his righteousness can cover our rebellion. Only the garment of his righteousness can cover us from the scorching heat of sin. Only the garment of his righteousness can cover us from the fiery darts that the enemy is sending our way every single moment. Only the garment of his righteousness can cover us from the power of false guilt. And no one can take that away from you. Most illustrations are imperfect illustrations, but they do make a point. And let me conclude by telling you a story that from an earthly point of view, hopefully illustrate what I'm trying to tell you, the point of that parable. In the Midwest, there was a little girl who was terminally ill and It was a matter of time before she was dying. 
She comes from a poor working class parents. But she only had one wish before she dies. And that was to shake the hand of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. She kept saying to her mother, Mother, I have one wish. Mother, I wish I could shake the hand of the president. She daily would dream about shaking the hand of the president. Until finally, out of love for her little girl, the mother went to a local businessman whom she knew somehow had connection and told him the story and solicited his help. And the man told the mother, he said, as a matter of weeks, the president is coming here and I'm hosting a dinner for him. Most certainly you and your daughter will be invited. And that day came, drew near, and the man sent out the invitations and he invited the little girl and her mother to come to dinner and he didn't hear anything and finally he wondered what happened and but before long he got a letter from the little girl and I want to read part of it to you. The little girl said to the man, she's so so grateful for the invitation. This was a dream come true for her. There is nothing she wanted more than to be able to shake the president's hand. But she could not accept the invitation. Why? She said, because my clothes were all tattered and the pair of shoes that I have are worn through the toe and I could not see the president in my shameful condition. The businessman wrote back and and he said, all that is needed will be provided. You and your mother will get new clothes and, and new shoes for the president's dinner. And then he continued, he said, I will not allow my guests to be ashamed in front of the president. So it was, at long last, the little girls realized her dream of meeting President Roosevelt. A man like all men, who died like all men. And I want you to take that and multiply it a million times. How many of us really dream of the day when we see Jesus face to face? Spiritually speaking, you and I have tattered clothes and worn out shoes. Spiritually speaking, we have nothing that will qualify us anywhere near heaven. We could not in our own shame of sin and guilt get into the chamber of the king. But the prince came and he hung on the cross. And he died. In order that he might provide all those who submit to him. Not just new clothes, not just new shoes, but his own robe of righteousness. Servants, how many of you have gone out and invited those who don't know the king to come to his palace? Those of you who know the Lord for many years, how many people have you invited to come to the king? Because you and I know that those who come to him like us will not be allowed to be put to shame when they meet his father at the wedding feast. But to some of you, this may be a piercing message in your heart. God has provided the only way of salvation, but you have not accepted his invitation thinking that somehow in your own effort and in your own merit and your own hard work and in your own way that you're going to get there. But that's not the way God provided for salvation. He is saying to you, come in repentance. 
Come in faith in my son, and you will be saved. You will come into the palace. You will come into the feast. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so overwhelmed that we get invited to the king's palace. That the king of kings love us so much and care for us so much that he keeps sending us invitations and perseveres with us and patient with us. We thank you. We bless you for that, Lord Jesus. And Father, I thank you for those who are genuinely desiring to be inviting servants and reaching out to those who have never understood the invitation. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to empower them. Father, I take comfort in the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You know us through and through. I pray for your power to empower them, that they even surprise themselves. Give them fruit for their labor. Honor their decision for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.